been a while since our last episode, so thanks for your patience and welcome back to the Mod Pod. Our October issue focused on glaucoma, and our chief medical editors have selected three great articles on the topic to share with you here. First, you'll hear about three imaging techniques brimming with potential for use in patients with glaucoma, followed by a crash course on selective laser trabeculoplasty, or SLT, and an overview of the latest developments in microinvasive glaucoma surgery, or MIGS. To start things off, Constantina Callas, a resident at Indiana University School of Optometry in Bloomington, Indiana, reads the article she wrote with Brett King, also of Indiana University School of Optometry, on the roles of ONFOS imaging, adaptive optics of the lamina cribosa, and enhanced depth imaging in glaucoma detection and management. The evolution of glaucoma imaging has been integral in helping clinicians diagnose glaucoma in its earliest stages and treat patients with confidence to arrest the disease. Advances in imaging technologies have enhanced our capability to document glaucomatous damage. In this article, we discuss the importance of several other emerging imaging modalities for the future of glaucoma management, on FOSS imaging, enhanced depth imaging, and adaptive optics of the laminal cribosa. On FOSS, meaning facing forward in French, is an imaging technique that allows clinicians to closely examine each layer of the retina in a coronal orientation. An on FOSS algorithm is available on most OCT platforms and modalities. In example, time domain, spectral domain, and swept source, each of which offers its own advantages and disadvantages. Regardless of modality, ONFOS imaging provides key information to aid in the diagnosis and management of glaucoma, as it offers high resolution for visualizing early retinal nerve fiber layer abnormalities. RNFL loss is a proven indicator of structural glaucomatous damage. Traditional OCT scans allow us to measure RNFL thickness to track these structural changes. In contrast, ONFOS imaging measures RNFL reflectance. Hood et al. show that asymmetry and reflectance may be a better metric for detecting early changes than information from traditional scans. ONFOS imaging allows the clinician to view the RNFL across a large area of the posterior pole, enabling him or her to evaluate variations in reflectance across the retina. The large area view also appears to be less affected by artifacts, including segmentation errors and deviations due to axial length, than are other modalities. Although this technique provides myriad information, it has limitations. ONFOS imaging fails to identify diffuse RNFL damage, unlike a traditional scan, due to its confined axial depth parameters. Yet clinical application of ONFOS imaging shows great promise once further work with regard to specificity and sensitivity is done. It is recommended that this imaging technique be used in conjunction with traditional OCT scans and printouts. ONFOS imaging is commercially available as an update on the Spectralis OCT, the Topcon DRI OCT Triton, Cirrus, and OptoView products. The lamina cribrosa is a mesh-like structure that provides mechanical support within the optic nerve. Because the neuroretinal rim is considered the primary site at which to observe the axonal damage in glaucoma, it is important to investigate the relationship between the lamina curvosa and the bowing that occurs with glaucoma. 
Until recently, imaging deep structures such as the lamina cribrosa had been challenging. Enhanced depth imaging is a specific mode of the spectral domain OCT that achieves deeper signal penetration by using longer wavelengths or by inverting the image to allow deeper tissues to be in focus. Imaging the lamina cribrosa in glaucoma highlights the disease's effects on lamina cribrosa thickness and position. Lamina cribrosa imaging can elucidate crucial differences among glaucoma subtypes. Studies have found that measurement of the lamina cribrosa thickness with enhanced depth imaging revealed overall thinning in both primary open angle glaucoma and normal tension glaucoma with significantly greater thinning in normal tension glaucoma. Those with normal tension glaucoma and adrance hemorrhage had the highest rate of progression. Thickness of the lamina cribrosa is also directly correlated with its position. When the lamina cribrosa is thinner, it tends to be displaced posterior. These findings may explain why glaucoma continues to progress despite patient's strict compliance with IOP lowering medication regimens. Although lamina cribrosa imaging with enhanced depth imaging appears to be promising, its role in glaucoma management requires further research. Advances in imaging clarity using adaptive optics technology in conjunction with enhanced depth imaging may also help to determine the importance of axonal bundles, glial cells, and small capillaries within the lamina cribrosa in eyes with glaucoma. Monochromatic aberrations in the eye are a significant limiting factor in acquiring high-resolution images. Adaptive optics is designed to eliminate these aberrations in real time using wavefront sensors and deformable mirrors. In theory, adaptive optics can be built into current imaging modalities such as scanning laser ophthalmoscopy and OCT. The addition of adaptive optics would allow microscopic imaging of the retina to quantify blood flow and capillary density and to detect nerve fiber bundles. Although this technology is still investigational and has limited clinical application today, its capabilities show exciting potential for future use in diagnosing and treating glaucoma. According to Dong et al., adaptive optics has illuminated early RNFL defects by detecting individual RNFL bundles that are not seen in traditional OCT scans. With unrivaled image clarity, detailed microscopic imaging may equip clinicians to detect glaucomatous changes at the cellular level, but normative databases have yet to be generated. Adaptive optics imaging sacrifices field of view and depth of focus to achieve this superior image quality. As a result, users must compile images from multiple scans to view large areas. Recent investigations have used adaptive optics to look at alterations in the RNFL, ganglion cell density, beams of the lamina cribosa, and capillary density. Using adaptive optic enhanced OCT, Liu et al. proved the ability to image individual ganglion cell somas and to determine ganglion cell densities in individuals. Those authors also demonstrated fine projections from the ganglion cell layer up to individual bundles of the RNFL. Further investigation with this technology of the relationship of structure and function may enhance understanding of and efforts to manage this disease. Early diagnosis and treatment are essential to delay the irreversible effects of glaucoma, 
Hence, it is of paramount importance to continue to push the boundaries of glaucoma imaging. Current imaging technologies offer good diagnostic accuracy and reproducibility, but the ongoing advances in on-foss imaging, adaptive optics, and enhanced depth imaging will continue to improve recognition of early glaucoma damage. We await integration of these technologies into new clinical diagnostic tools. But in the meantime, they are already aiding our understanding of glaucoma's pathophysiology and progression. Let's move on from imaging and glaucoma to treatment. Next up, Mitch Eibach, an optometrist Advanced Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, reviews what ODs need to know about SLT. Eye care physicians have never had a bigger treatment toolbox for glaucoma than they do today. Recent years have seen the emergence of novel glaucoma drops that specifically target trabecular meshwork outflow, including Visalta, Ropressa, and Roclitan. We've also seen the introduction of numerous safe and efficacious devices for microinvasive glaucoma surgery, or MIGs. And we look forward to the availability of drug delivery devices to transport medications for IOP control. A long-standing treatment that should not be overlooked is laser trabeculoplasty, now nearly universally performed as selective laser trabeculoplasty, or SLT. SLT procedures performed in the United States have plateaued at an estimated 140,000 treatments per year, even though the demographics of glaucoma are growing. The recently published Selective Laser Trabeculoplasty versus Eye Drops for First-Line Treatment of Ocular Hypertension and Glaucoma, or LIGHT, trial has re-energized the use of laser or light therapy for the treatment of glaucoma and ocular hypertension. The LIGHT trial included 718 patients who were treated with either SLT or glaucoma medications. They were followed for three years with the primary endpoint being a quality-of-life survey and secondary endpoints of cost, safety, and clinical effectiveness. In this article, I will review the LIGHT trial and other published data to focus on SLT as a first-line glaucoma treatment and as an adjunctive therapy. Early laser trabeculoplasty procedures were performed with argon laser. The glaucoma laser trial showed that argon laser trabeculoplasty, or ALT, was non-inferior to timolol in newly diagnosed patients. Along with modest efficacy, however, ALT procedures produced robust tissue damage and scarring secondary to inflammation and coagulation at the level of the TM. As the paradigm shifted away from use of ALT, research progressed in laser therapy. In 2001, SLT was approved by the FDA for the treatment of open-angle glaucoma. In SLT, a low-energy Q-switched ND YAG laser is used to deliver laser energy pulses that are selectively absorbed by pigmented TM cells. Theories regarding the physiological mechanism of SLT revolve around reconfiguration of the TM or changing the outflow holes in the anatomical drain of the eye. The latter being the drain explanation has resonated with patients. Far less laser energy with shorter laser duration is used in SLT compared to ALT, thus enhancing safety and improving repeatability. The literature suggests that SLT decreases IOP on average about 30% from baseline in treatment-naive 
with laser or drops eyes with potency similar to that of a topical prostaglandin analog or PGA. In a prospective study, Katz et al. compared SLT and a PGA as first-line glaucoma treatment in 69 patients. With a mean baseline IOP in each group of 24 millimeters of mercury at 12 months follow-up, SLT had lowered IOP by 6.3 millimeters of mercury compared with 7 millimeters of mercury in the DROPS group. A similar study by Melamed et al. also found IOP lowering of 30% with SLT, but those authors also concluded that 89% of patients achieved at least a 5 millimeter of mercury decrease in IOP and less than 5% of patients achieved no IOP decrease. In the light study, both glaucoma drops at 91.3% and SLT at 93% were solid in achieving target IOPs with 78% of SLT treatments requiring no additional drops. As with any glaucoma treatment, there are factors that affect absolute values for IOP lowering with SLT. These include baseline IOP, treatment-naive or previously medicated eyes, type of glaucoma, and glaucoma severity. A general agreement among practitioners and the literature is that SLT is predictably more efficacious in eyes with a higher baseline IOP. In a phenomenon that may be connected with higher baseline IOP, research has shown that patients who are washed out of their medications had a better response to SLT. The same study associated a positive response to PGA medications as being positively predictive for SLT. Two recent studies comparing SLT in patients with and without pseudoexfoliation glaucoma concluded that the IOP lowering effect was statistically significant, being greater in eyes with pseudoexfoliation glaucoma. SLT is usually not thought of as a forever treatment for glaucoma. In my practice, it is more of a bridge treatment to the next option. Durability or duration of efficacy analyses can be misleading, but it is generally agreed that if IOP is not lowered within the first six months after SLT, it is considered a failed treatment. When successful treatment is defined as IOP lowering of greater than or equal to 20% from baseline, the mean duration, where half of patients are meeting the criterion, is two to three years after treatment. A relaxed rule of thumb is that SLT treatment success decreases by about 10% per year with a baseline success rate of 70%. Unlike with ALT, repeating SLT is considered both safe and efficacious. Compared with the initial SLT, repeat SLT has been shown to achieve comparable initial IOP decrease, although the durability of the treatment is shorter than the initial treatment. The most common postoperative adverse event of SLT is pain or discomfort. This is most commonly secondary to postoperative inflammation and should be managed accordingly. Based on the results of the steroids after laser trabeculoplasty trial, or SALT trial, it was shown there is improved efficacy with short-term anti-inflammatory treatment. In our practice, we prescribe topical steroids four times a day for four days after SLT. The second most common adverse event after SLT is postoperative IOP spike of five millimeters of mercury or 10 millimeters of mercury. The numbers vary across studies, but 5% to 25% of patients can have a same-day IOP spike that can be managed with topical antihypertensive medications. In our practice, we prophylactically administer alpha-GAN-P just once in clinic after SLT. Other rare postoperative complications include, but are not limited to, transient corneal edema, peripheral anterior synechiae, and transient light sensitivity syndrome.
Despite the availability of great topical glaucoma medications, patient compliance remains one of the biggest hurdles for topical therapy. Surprisingly, in the patient quality of life surveys in the LIGHT trial, patient satisfaction with topical drops and SLT were nearly equivalent. The LIGHT trial also compared the cost of topical medications with that of SLT. In that study's European setting, laser was found with 97% probability to be more cost-effective than drops as first-line treatment. Unfortunately, the cost of medications can be prohibitive for some patients, which further decreases compliance. The future for alternative glaucoma treatments is bright, but still by far the most accepted treatment approach is lowering IOP. For both first-line glaucoma treatment and long-term management, physicians should be comfortable discussing the merits of medications, laser therapy, and surgical options. You just heard Dr. Eibach discuss a laser approach to treating glaucoma. Now, listen as one of MOD's chief medical editors, Justin Schweitzer, also advanced Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, tackles the topic of MIGS to better prepare any of you who co-manages patients undergoing these procedures. Microinvasive glaucoma surgery is in its infancy compared with other surgical glaucoma options. Since the iStent trabecular micro bypass stent received FDA approval in 2012, research and development in this field has exploded. MIGS procedures use an ab internal approach, are minimally traumatic, reduce IOP at least modestly, and offer extremely high safety and rapid recovery. These procedures are often positioned as the next step for patients with mild to moderate glaucoma in whom topical glaucoma medications have failed or who have a visually significant cataract and glaucoma together. As options for MIGS and other minimally invasive glaucoma procedures expand, it is important for ODs to keep abreast of the latest developments, which I review in this article. In 2018, the FDA approved two MIGS devices for use in combination with cataract surgery for the reduction of IOP in patients with mild to moderate primary open angle glaucoma. Hydrus micro stent and eye stent inject both increase aqueous outflow by stenting the trabecular meshwork and accessing Schlem's canal. Optometrists who already co-manage cataract surgery patients will find the process for patients undergoing the procedure combined with placement of either a hydrus microstent or eye stent inject to be similar, but with a few additional considerations. A layered hyphema can occur with either device, but it was reported in 0.5% of patients in the Horizon study and none in the eye stent inject pivotal trial. Preoperatively, it is important to educate patients receiving either device that they may develop a mild transient hyphema that may cloud their vision. The hyphema will eventually resolve at around one week. The transient hyphema, if not layered, will appear to be a mild anterior chamber reaction at the slit lamp. Either implant can become obstructed. The reported incident of device obstruction was 3.8% obstructive and 14.9% non-obstructive in the Horizon study and 6.2% complete or partial in the iStent inject pivotal trial. Gonioscopy is required to visualize obstructions. If an obstruction is identified and deemed to be increased in IOP, the patient should be referred back to the surgeon for treatment options. In some cases, the blockage can be removed with a YAG laser procedure. It is important for optometrists to visualize a stent once during the first three months after surgery to look for obstruction and to repeat gonioscopy if unexplained disease progression or IOP elevation occurs.
Launched in 2015 and 2018, respectively, the Kahook Dual Blade and Omni Surgical System excise trabecular meshwork tissue. The KDB allows surgeons to remove three clock hours of trabecular meshwork, which gives aqueous direct access to Schlem Canal and distal collector channels. The Omni Surgical System targets three points of resistance in the conventional outflow pathway. First, it delivers small amounts of OVD or viscoelastic through a microcatheter to viscodilate Schlem Canal for either 180 degrees or 360 degrees. Second, the device excises either 180 degrees or 360 degrees of trabecular meshwork to allow aqueous access to Schlem Canal and distal collector channels. A third surgical option, abinternal canaloplasty, or ABIC, uses a lighted catheter to deliver small amounts of viscoelastic to viscodilate Schlem's canal 180 degrees or 360 degrees. These procedures are indicated for patients with mild to moderate glaucoma who are pseudophagic, but all of the procedures can be paired with cataract surgery as well. The most common postoperative consideration with these procedures is hyphema. In a recent retrospective study, 50.6% of patients had a transient hyphema after treatment with the omnisurgical system. A majority of the hyphema were rated as mild and self-resolving. In a retrospective study involving the KDB, 17.3% of patients were noted to have hyphema with the majority on postoperative day one and resolving within seven days of presentation. Hypotony is not a postoperative concern with hydrus microstent, I-stent inject, KDB, omnisurgical system, or ABIC because none of the devices or procedures bypasses the backstop pressure of 8 millimeters of mercury to 10 millimeters of mercury called episclerovenous pressure. In other words, episclerovenous pressure essentially serves as a safety net with these procedures. With all five MIGS options, managing IOP in the first three months after surgery is critical. If a patient has achieved the target pressure established before surgery, medications may be removed one by one at IOP checks. It's important to remind patients that IOP can fluctuate during the first three postoperative months as the eye recovers. It is also worth re-emphasizing to patients that glaucoma is a lifelong disease, that no MIGS procedure can cure it, and that regular checkups are essential. In 2016, the FDA approved the Zen gel stent for the treatment of patients with refractory glaucoma in whom previous surgical treatment failed and patients who have primary open angle glaucoma or pseudoexfoliative or pigmentary glaucoma with open angles who are unresponsive to maximum tolerated medical therapy. The device comes preloaded in an injector. It is implanted through a clear corneal incision using an ab internal approach. The Zen shunts fluid from the anterior chamber to the subconjunctival space, forming a low-lying bleb. The most common postoperative consideration with this device are fibrosis of the bleb and hypotony. In the FDA pinnacle trial, the rate of bleb needling to remove fibrosis was 32%, and hypotony occurred at a rate of 24.6%. Hypotony spontaneously resolved in a majority of the cases. If a patient presents with hypotony, which is IOP less than 5 millimeters of mercury or an IOP below which the eye does not maintain its normal shape, it is advisable to discontinue all topical glaucoma medications. The next steps are to examine the anterior chamber for irritable corneal touch and perform a fundus examination to look for choroidal effusion. If both conditions are ruled out, the patient may be monitored. 
Recently, many surgeons have transitioned to ab external placement of the Jizen gel stent. Although techniques vary, the greatest advantage of an ab external approach is that it avoids entangling the device in subtenon capsule, which can increase the rate of bleb needling. As the prevalence of glaucoma continues to rise across the world, the volume of MIGs and minimally invasive glaucoma procedures will increase. Optometrists must be ready to educate and manage these patients. That does it for our glaucoma content. In addition to these articles from the main issue, we'd also like to share Andrew Mackner's article from the Collaborative Eye section of our October issue. Dr. Mackner practices at Adena Eye Physicians and Surgeons in Minnesota. Here he is with his article on the management of intraocular pressure after cataract surgery. With a growing population in need of cataract surgery, optometry's role in managing patients with cataracts extends far beyond simply telling them they have a cataract and referring them to an ophthalmologist. Optometrists should be prepared to discuss IOL implant options, address ocular and systemic health, and they should be comfortable managing or triaging any postoperative complication associated with cataract extraction. Through advances in surgical techniques and technologies, cataract extraction has evolved from intracapsular to extracapsular cataract extraction to phacoemulsification and now laser-assisted cataract surgery. In modern cataract surgery, a small one millimeter side port incision is made, OVDs are injected to maintain the space in the eye and to protect ocular structures, a two to three millimeter clear corneal incision is made for the insertion of instruments, a capsularexis is made, the lens is removed using phacoemulsification and an IOL is implanted. Although surgical techniques can vary, understanding the basics of the surgical procedure allows ODs to better address complications associated with cataract surgery, including inflammation, refractive status, elevated or decreased IOP, infection, and posterior capsular opacification. Postoperative complications of cataract surgery have been well documented and every optometrist should be prepared to manage these complications within his or her scope of practice. In this article, I will focus on managing a patient's IOP after cataract surgery. Elevated IOP is one of the most common and frequently reported complications after cataract surgery. It occurs secondary to a combination of pre-existing iatrogenic components, which can include compromised outflow, retained OVD, surgical trauma, watertight wound closure, retained lenticular debris, release of iris pigment, hyphema, and inflammation. Retained OVD is thought to be a major contributor. After cataract extraction, any remaining OVD in either the lens capsule, anterior chamber, may obstruct trabecular outflow, resulting in elevated IOP. The elevation in IOP typically peaks at 3 to 7 hours after cataract extraction, persists for the first 24 hours, and returns to near normal levels within 48 hours. Numerous studies have documented this rise in IOP after cataract surgery, and it can be high as 40 millimeters of mercury in some cases. Although this transient rise in IOP is benign in most cases, for some patients it has the potential to threaten vision. Transient postoperative IOP elevation has been reported to cause optic atrophy, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and vascular events such as retinal vein occlusion. This elevation in IOP also puts patients with optic nerves already compromised by glaucoma at risk for progression. 
There is no standard regimen to prophylactically address elevated postoperative IOP. Several studies have explored the use of intracameral, topical, systemic hypotensive agents as prophylaxis for postoperative IOP elevation. However, these studies have produced conflicting results, and so there is no consensus on the efficacy of medical prophylaxis for IOP elevation. In most cases, IOP elevation was reduced but not totally eliminated, and in other cases, the elevation in IOP was only delayed. Rainier et al. compared the effect of topical Trusopt, a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, with that of Zalatan, a prostaglandin. Both drugs produced a clinically significant reduction in IOP at 6 hours. However, only dorzolamide was effective at 24 hours. Rainier et al. also compared Cosopt with Latanoprost and found that the combination drug reduced IOP more effectively than Latanoprost. However, in Rainier's comparison, only dorzolamide timolol prevented IOP spikes greater than 30 millimeters of mercury. The literature shows no consensus regarding prophylactic treatment of IOP after cataract surgery. This makes the one-day postoperative IOP check important, as pressures can be unpredictable. Clinically, IOP at or near 30 millimeters of mercury in a healthy eye can be treated topically. The administration of one drop of a fixed combination hypotensive, such as dorzolamide timolol, will effectively reduce the pressure to an acceptable level below 28 millimeters of mercury. Once IOP reaches an acceptable level, the patient can be released without the need to remain on the topical hypotensive medication at home. In the event that the IOP is elevated to 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury, some clinicians will recommend the addition of oral acetazolamide in conjunction with topical hypotensive therapy to bring the IOP to an acceptable level. The rationale behind sideport paracentesis is to provide an immediate reduction in IOP. To perform sideport paracentesis, pressure is applied to the edge of an existing sideport incision using a sterile instrument to release aqueous humor, which will appear as a positive Seidel sign with the use of fluorescein. This method has been shown to produce an immediate reduction in IOP, however, the pressure returns to elevated levels within four hours. It is recommended that topical and or oral hypotensives be administered to a patient undergoing paracentesis in order to promote a sustained reduction in IOP. In eyes with a high risk of optic nerve damage, a similar medical approach should be taken to address elevated IOP. Care should be taken to ensure that the IOP is adequately controlled for an individual patient. Follow-up should be driven by the nature of the case. For glaucomatous patients, if an IOP is elevated at day one, they can be seen at a shorter interval to recheck pressure. Patients not considered to be at high risk can be seen one to two weeks postoperatively, depending on the provider's preferred follow-up schedule. It is important to remember that at a 24-hour postoperative exam, that if the pressure is elevated, it is not likely a steroid response. Elevated IOP secondary to steroid response typically happens 10 days to two weeks after steroid treatment is initiated. If a patient's IOP is elevated at this time, the best treatment is to taper or stop the steroid, switch to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to control the inflammation. In some cases, the addition of a topical hypotensive may be beneficial. IOP can also be lower than expected day one after cataract surgery. During surgery, many surgeons fashion a clear corneal incision with a three-plane self-sealing architecture to reduce the need for sutures. With this incision design, there is a risk for wound leaks. Patients at increased risk for a wound leak include those who underwent complicated cataract surgery with prolonged surgical time, those who had a mature cataract, zonular dehiscence, or zonular laxity. Additionally, patients with a history of vitrectomy or LASIK, especially hyperopic LASIK, are at an increased risk for wound leaks. 
Patients exhibiting a wound leak are at an increased risk of hypotony, infection, and IOL instability, which may be of concern in patients with a toric IOL uh, because rotation can significantly degrade visual acuity. If a patient's IOP is below 10 millimeters of mercury in the first 24 hours after surgery, uh, evaluation for the presence of a Seidel sign is warranted. During examination, the rate of the Seidel should be noted, as should the depth of the anterior chamber. A wound leak that is mild will usually self-seal within one to two days. For leaks that are moderate in an eye with a formed anterior chamber, a bandage contact lens can be replaced to reduce the lid interaction and promote reepithelialization. When a bandage contact lens is introduced, the provider should increase the antibiotic frequency to at least six times a day. Some providers also recommend decreasing the steroid and increasing the antibiotic to promote healing. Patients should be seen every one to two days until the leak is resolved. Patients should be educated on continued use of the shield while sleeping and should be told to avoid rubbing their eyes, getting any water directly into their eyes, and warning signs of infection should be reviewed as well. If the leak is not resolving, the IOP is consistently low, or the anterior chamber is shallow or flat, the patient should be referred back to the surgeon for consultation and possible surgical repair or revision. As the number of patients undergoing cataract surgery continues to rise, it is more important than ever that optometrists are prepared to address any perioperative needs that arise. Elevated IOP and decreased IOP with wound leaks are postoperative complications that every optometrist co-managing cataract patients should be equipped to handle. Whether you skipped ahead to particular articles of interest or you listened all the way through, thanks for lending us your ears. Subscribe to the Mod Pod on Apple or Android or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, be sure to leave us a review. Your feedback matters to us. As always, feel free to reach out by emailing us at modernod at bmctoday.com. Until next time.